Evening, everybody. <laughs> well, my name is um, Tarnia, and well, I wanted to do um, uh, take this opportunity to kind of focus on a, a particular topic for a, a series um, of Thursday nights. And uh, I thought what might be useful to you, and I hope it is, you know, please tell me if it's not, I can always switch midstream and do something else. But I thought that you, uh, it might be useful to reflect some on karma, the, um, what, the experience of karma, like uh, karmic tendencies and habits and patterns that arise in the mind and the heart. Uh, things that you see as a meditator, uh, and um, look at how it is that one can work with these kinds of tendencies. So that um, uh, tonight I'd like to look at just kind of the, the, the raw beginning to tame the patterns of mind that aren't particularly helpful to us, that kind of uh, actually backfire and create a lot of suffering for us. They masquerade as something that's going to help and uh, get a, make us happy and bring us to more comfortable places, but then in the actual experience of it, that's not, that's not the way it gets played out. Uh, and then next week I thought I'd look at really um, working very specifically with difficult states of mind. Like, how do we do that as meditators? You know, it's not, you know from sitting on the cushion uh, that it's not a case of just sitting down, closing your eyes, and going into blissful samadhi. (laughs) There's a lot going on in the mind. And most of it is quite difficult, quite unpleasant. And, um, you know, the the whole idea with the meditation practice is to begin to discern how all of that is happening and how to get some uh, control over it and how to get some understanding uh, in relationship to it. So I thought I'd do that then the, the next week. And then uh, to look at, you know, not all of it is awful. <laughs> you know, there's a lot of karmic tendencies and habits and patterns of mind that we have. They're actually quite lovely. And we tend to focus a lot on the difficult things and don't notice our own goodness, you know, the kindness in our hearts. And um, so I think it's very important as meditators to also to tune in to um, these kinds of states. So I don't want to talk uh, only about the difficulties, but um, uh, it's about awareness, awareness of both extremes. So uh, we'll look at that in the subsequent weeks as well. Um, And then I think on Monday nights I'll I'll be doing something with the Foundations of Mindfulness, and then Sunday doing some uh, more general talks about the Buddhist teachings and about practice. Okay. So uh, I wanted to look tonight at this topic of taming karmic patterns and habits. Um, the Buddhist teachings tell us that in the in the unawakened state, which is what where we are, uh, mo- most of what uh, the impulses that arise in the mind are sort of just very raw and fundamental, almost instinctive, not really that far removed from animal-like impulses. You know, Ajahn Amara says that. Uh, you know, really in the unawakened state where we're behaving much like primitive beings, you know, where the basic impulses are to, you know, to eat it, to kill it, or to mate with it, you know. (laughs) Sort of the energy that's always coming out of us with the things that we come into contact with. And, you know, the Buddhist teachings are basically saying that we act uh, foolishly because we don't have uh, much control 
or understanding uh, about these kinds of patterns and habits. And we follow impulses, the, the primary impulses of gratification, trying to get things that we find attractive, and repulsion and aversion, trying to get away from things um, that we find unattractive. So in, in this state, we say, we, we aren't much more uh, evolved than the animals, you know, just really moving about from very, very raw and fundamental states of mind. And the, the difficulty is that we can't seem to see the danger we're that asleep. It's like we're we're like children in a way, who um, you know maybe keep running out in the street after a ball and don't realize the harm and don't realize the danger that uh, waits for them out there, or putting uh, dangerous objects in their mouth all the time. You know, um, uh, in a way, as we begin to wake up to it, I don't know about you, but I, I have this feeling with my own meditation practice, of it almost being a little embarrassing to see how strong some of these uh, raw impulses were and how little control I had over them. So the, the Buddhist uh, teachings are, are point us to uh, the fact that we're really blind to a lot of these, these drives uh, that are actually um, predicting and um, creating our actions. And that most of it in this unawakened state um, is, is actually creating very difficult and unhappy states of mind for us. Uh, it, it wouldn't be a problem if we were always acting out of very kind and loving states of mind, but uh, we aren't. And so um, the net result of it is that we aren't very happy. You know, following impulses like the ideas that if I just get this thing or do this thing or have this thing, I'll be happy. Or if I could just get away from this condition, this person, this situation, I'll be happy. You know, and never really delving into, uh, to deeper into that experience and seeing if in fact that's true. So this is why we have the meditation practice, to begin to give us some tools to work with to see our own states of mind and, and see for ourselves if following these impulses uh, that seem very organic and very natural at one level, but to see for ourselves if, if they're actually delivering, you know, if we actually, uh, if we get the things we want, if we're actually happy, if we get away from the things that we don't want, if we're actually happy. Now, there's a lot of really fabulous suttas um, that uh, the Buddha taught to, to help us to understand what's going on with the mind. And one of them, which I love, is called the Six Animals. I don't know if you've heard this one before, but um, he talks about uh, you know these animals that live in the in the jungle and in the forest. And he says, now what what if a person came along and and took um, these six animals and tied them up? And basically, they're, they're uh, a, a snake, a crocodile, a dog, a monkey, a bird, and um, I always forget one. <laughs> uh, let's see. Oh, the jackal. That's why I always forget him. He's the one that lives in the channel ground. And each of these animals has a, has a domain. They're very comfortable in different domains. Um, and so they're always trying to get to their own domains. So what would happen if someone came along and sort of harnessed each of them, tying a rope around 
the, the neck or the body of each of these animals and, um, and then just tying each of those ropes together so that what you have is this knot in the center with these six animals. What would happen? And so he describes this and he says, well, they would just dart here and there in all different places, each one trying to get to their own domain. You know, the bird would try to get into the air, the jackal would try to get to the charnel ground, the snake would try to get to the anthill. You know, and what would happen is that for a time, one of those would be the strongest. And that's where the, the whole gang of them would have to go. You know? And then that one would weaken and another one would get strong and they would all have to go with that one. You know? um, and he said, you know, this is just like someone who hasn't developed mindfulness, who hasn't developed concentration. And the six animals are compared to the six senses. The seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, and then thinking as well. You know, in Buddhism we have the six senses. So that what happens is, in this unawakened state, we're, we're captivated and mesmerized by what's going on at each of these sens- sensory levels, at each of these sense doors. So that for a while it might be a sight, uh, and then we're totally caught up in it, we go with that. And then uh, something else gets strong, a sound, a thought, a feeling, you know, and this is the, this is our experience. It's just a, a constant parade of sights, sounds, smells, sensations, thoughts, feelings. And, and that's what we're doing. You know, we're just kind of following each as it arises, being captivated by it for a little while and then putting it down. You know, I, I, I've experienced it like channel surfing, you know, where you, you've got the remote and you, you know, you're clicking the channels and it's got, that whatever channel is on has got like two and a half seconds to captivate you. And if it doesn't do it, then you go to the next one, you know. And this is, this is what it's like. You know, we're just kind of mesmerized by all of the things that appear to us at each of the sense doors. Have you, have you felt this? It's, it's amazing to begin to see it, you know. Um, a number of years ago, a friend of mine and I, um, used to like to go shopping a lot and we would go into the stores and there was this feeling like we didn't even particularly want anything didn't you know like you didn't go in looking for i need this or i need that it was just this sense of wanting something you know and and just go into the store and almost with this attitude of i don't know what it is but when i see it i'll know it you know <laughs> and that, and that, that would be the, the thing that won. That would be the thing that got my attention the biggest and that I stayed with and to the extent that I consumed it. And it's like this. This is, this is actually how it is every moment, uh, if we're honest. And the, the effort in meditation is to begin to still that a little bit, to begin to get a sense of that as what's going on. There's, um, there's another sutta that I love called, uh, I think it's called the All That Is or something like that, but um, it's a similar one where the Buddha is, is uh, telling us or pointing to the fact that there are these things going on at each of the sense doors and there is seeing, there is hearing, smelling, tasting, sensing and thinking and feeling and there is the knowing of that, that in reality 
in the purest sense, that's actually all that's going on. There is a sight, there is a sound, there is a smell, and there is the experience of seeing, hearing, smelling. And there is a sense of knowing that, of being aware of that. Uh, And with mindfulness, um, we can be aware of sensory experience and not make more of it than that. Just kind of settle down and begin to rest more peacefully in a sense of having seen something, having heard something, even having thought something, which is to me fascinating. I mean, the, it, it take, can take a while in the meditation practice to, to get enough objectivity on our thoughts and feelings to be able to see them objectively and just see them as that much. You know, to know that you're thinking and not get so completely caught up in the content of the thought. Just to, just to be able to rest with it in a way that knows that that's what's happening. You know what I mean? It's, it's a, a very subtle experience, but wonderful when you can begin to do that. Because if you can feel that, then one literally isn't consumed by one's thoughts or driven by one's thoughts. You can actually just simply know that that's what's going on. So, you know, the, the awakened state is one that rests in that place of knowing what's happening simply knowing what's happening. Now, it it would be wrong, really, to say that the goal of practice is to walk around in that state. You know, for most people, that wouldn't be a very attractive idea to just walk around knowing, seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, sensing, you know. I I, I don't know if that's even possible. It it might be possible in the case of an arhant or or someone, but I'm, I'm actually not sure. But at any rate, it's not what we're trying to do. I think what he's saying in the sutta is to begin to get a sense that that's really all that there is. That's really all that's going on. And that it's, you can sort of demystify the whole experience and demesmerize, disenchant ourselves from the whole sensory world a little bit if you get a sense of it as uh, just being simply that much. So our purpose is just to slow it down and see it for what it is. And it's not to say that you don't, uh, you don't uh, go after things that you need or get away from things that are difficult. Can you see what I'm saying? It's not, it's not a, a case of, of abandoning that altogether, but just to begin to see that that is the process that's happening. Just to give you a few examples, um, some some kind of nice, good, juicy ones that people can relate to, I hope. Uh, just consider the idea of, um, you, you might notice uh, a wish to, to go and eat a pizza or go and have something, uh, some of your favorite foods to eat. So the idea is to, to begin to get a sense, not just on the cushion, but throughout the day. You know, how did that arise? How did that happen? You find yourself going to Pizza Hut. And just to reflect a little bit and say, now, how did that happen? Was it um, a commercial that you saw? And maybe a billboard? Or maybe you pass a Pizza Hut one day? I know if this has happened to me, well, that's like, it might be three days of thinking about pizzas, you know, and not really aware of how that even got started. 
and all of a sudden you're in there and you're following that urge but not really noticing that it was a sight it was something that I saw or maybe uh, something that I smelled or something, an idea that somebody put in my head and, and that's how that happened right? you just begin to get a sense of how these um, apparent decisions are being made how we are following our impulses Um, another one that actually was a, is a true story where uh, a number of friends and I uh, were out one night after, it was actually after a meditation sitting, and uh, we went and got um, a piece of cake at this great place in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, where I used to live, and they have these fabulous desserts. So we would go in there sometime and um, have a nice dessert after the evening program. And uh, one night uh, we were eating this Italian cream cake and it was so delicious uh, that somebody said, um, this is great, you know, we really need to do this more often. Let's, let's do this every Tuesday night. And so then within a few seconds everybody had their calendars out and we were looking to see whether we were free and whether we could all get together on Tuesday nights to do this until somebody caught it and said, do you see what we just did, you know? It was like a pleasant flavor and um, out of that pops this longing to have more of it. And, and then before you know it, within a few seconds, we had a plan to do this every Tuesday night. <laughs> it, was, it was like crazy, you know? Just out of this experience of something delicious. And the irony is that in the midst of that, we were still eating our cake. But nobody was even tasting it, you know, because when you follow these kinds of impulses, then that, that uh, becomes the experience, the attachment to the idea. And it actually is, it's born out of a pleasant taste. And then by going with the idea, you've actually moved away from the taste. You know, the pleasure is happening right now. It's not happening next Tuesday. <laughs> but we're missing it because we've just created this uh, whole uh, urge and are following it. You, you can get a sense of this, it's fascinating to watch how the urge is actually taking us away from now, which is the only place where one could actually experience pleasure. You know, it, it's not, it, not going to happen tomorrow. Tomorrow never, never happens. You know? So it's fascinating to watch ourselves do this. And I was talking to a friend recently who had bought a car, bought a new car, and um, there she was, just uh, driving it off the showroom floor, and with the keys in her hand, and she stood there by this car, and she had this, suddenly had this mindful moment, and she said, now, how did this happen? <laughs> how did I get here? <laughs> you know? And then she remembered that a few weeks ago, a few weeks prior to that, she was uh, taking a long trip and the car was not comfortable. And the seat, the back, she, her back was very sore on this trip. And now, $30,000 later, <laughs> it's like it hit her that really that's how it happened. It was an uncomfortable moment. 
that came out of a long trip in the car, and possibly something that could have been remedied with a pillow, you know, a 399 pillow. <laughs> and, I mean, and, and yet here she was, you know. So it's just to, to think about these things. I mean, the, I, don't get me wrong, the, the teachings aren't saying don't eat pizza and don't enjoy cake and don't get new cars, you know. It's more saying just notice how these things happen because then you're, you're freer. You're not at the mercy of these impulses. This is how our lives are driven. This is how the decisions in our lives get made. This is how the, the course of our, of our lives is determined, just by moments exactly like these. And, and here we are. So the idea with, with the meditation practice is to begin to shine some light on moments like this so we have options. It, it's not necessarily the case that one has to follow these things. It's, not, it's okay if you do, but the idea is to do it with some semblance of awareness, some semblance of knowing uh, and discerning whether or not this is the, the thing that you actually want to do, not because it's convenient or easy or gratifying or going to get us away from something unpleasant. So the, the, the Buddha asks, uh, going back to the six animals, he asks in the same sutta, he presents a whole other scenario. He says, now what if you took those same six animals and you tied them on a rope, and, but then you took all six ropes and tied them to a stake and then hammered the stake into the ground? You know, what would happen then? And what you would have is each animal going off in the direction, trying to get away from the stake, and over a, the course of time, um, finding one just getting weary with the effort because you really can't go very far. You know, tie, like tying it to the yoke of mindfulness is what it's compared to. And, and real, getting the experience of what it's like not to necessarily follow all of those impulses. And what would happen if you can restrain yourself enough um, to uh, reach that point where the, the fascination with sense objects begins to diminish. And then you have, he creates this beautiful image of the animals just laying down by the stake, just resting, relaxed, and it's not, it's not an irritated state. It's a state of ease. It's a state of relaxation. There's not the case of constantly running off to everything, trying to uh, gratify itself in its domain. Can you feel that? I love that. I love that image. Yeah. So you begin to, to settle into... Um, seeing that really it's just that much. It's just this movement of the mind over and over again. There are sights and sounds and smells, sensations, thoughts, even our own thoughts and feelings that just kind of mesmerize us and we incline towards them. But you can, through the meditation practice, just relax. You can just relax and notice this whole experience um, and this in itself is uh, a, a certain freedom, isn't it? 
You know, you really don't have to do anything more than that. You can just um, settle down a little bit. This is the the, um, the settling aspect of meditation, the relaxing, the tranquilizing, you know, the not being so caught up in everything. That right there is enough. I mean, if, if your meditation practice is nothing more than that, it's great. <laughs> you know, you just be, you get a lot more happy with that kind of ease. But it's, you know, the, the, the Buddhist uh, meditation practice takes us to another level, which is understanding and discernment and insight, so that by observing this whole thing over the months and years of practice, you begin to see how it's operating. And so your, your detachment, uh, your restraint in going off to everything that arises, um, is actually being governed by something else. It's being governed by an understanding. Because you begin to see that this whole process is, can be um, understood. It can be managed. You can see that for ourselves, and this is really where the Buddhist teachings are so rich, you know, begin to see whether or not the going off is actually gratifying and whether or not the getting away is actually getting us to a happy state. And through that kind of observation, once you begin to see in that way, then the settling becomes even stronger and stronger and stronger. You know, you just get this peace and this happiness this wonderful contentment. <laughs> it's like with things as they are, you know, the way it is right now is fine. You know, one doesn't have to always be setting something up as something to attain, something to move towards, or something to get away from. You know, otherwise it's just, it's, it's all so compulsive. You know, one of my teachers said this one time, and, and it just struck, with, struck me the way he said it. You know, in the, in the unawakened state, it is all compulsion. It's just feeding itself. It's just drives and impulses that uh, are get followed and get reinforced and therefore become a, n- a new drive and a new impulse. And there's no freedom in that. There's no contentment. There's no sense of ease in any of that. If we follow everything like that, it, 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 it's like, did you ever know anybody who um, sort of just picks up every, every fad or every new idea, everything that comes along and, and has to uh, go with it, you know, has to follow it. You know, I, I knew somebody like this once, and it was painful to to watch. There's somebody that we, you know, my friends and I all love very dearly, but she she was just she would get so captivated by the latest things, and and then have to like she'd actually go so far as to get trained in it and learn all about it, and then start a business and you know, get stationary and set up an office and, you know, do this and, and then follow something like that for a while. And then uh, within a few months, that was all over, drop that, disassemble everything and pick up the next thing. You know, and she would drive herself crazy. 
and uh, and it was hard as as the people in her life who loved her to watch this pattern, this habit, because there was never a sense of ease, you know, never a sense of contentment, never a sense of just being okay with things as they are. And and then there's also this, you know, you never actually build a sense of confidence in in your sense of things, you know, and the way you see it, the way you want it. It's always kind of being driven by external forces. What the world says is the, is the best way to be, the, the best outfit, the best hairdo, the, you know, the best thing to own, all of that. So this, I think that uh, this sutta really points to um, a very important aspect in the teaching of, particularly the meditation practice, but the teachings uh, in general. And that is the um, the value of the importance of restraint, a certain restraint that comes with mindfulness, just being aware of what arises and not necessarily having to follow it all the time. This is a, a very considered methodology in the Buddhist teachings. You know, to um, endeavor to uh, practice restraint in, with regard to these impulses. You know, when you think, maybe you don't always think about it this way, that um, meditation is really uh, largely exercises in restraint. <laughs> I, think if, I think if we put that out at the first meditation retreat, people might not come again, you know? <laughs> the idea, I mean, if you, if you thought that's what you were doing, sitting here hour after hour, or certainly on retreats where it goes on for days, you know, what are you doing? You're sitting there restraining the impulse to act on what arises. Restraining the impulse to get caught up in the thoughts that arise and the feelings that arise. Restraining the impulse to to build stories around the things that you hear and the things that you see. And just endeavoring to settle back enough to see those impulses arise, to break your experience down enough such that you notice that there's a sound, you notice in the next moment the thoughts that are created around that sound. You notice the moods of the mind in relationship to that, right? And just that's what we're doing. We're actually restraining the um, normal or uh, habitual impulse and just trying to see if we can get a sense of it instead to observe it, to know it, to understand how it's happening. And the reason for this is very important. If, if we don't do that, if you're always following everything, then you never get any understanding. You can't see the process as long as you're completely caught up in the content as long as we're completely consumed by what's going on. And it's seeing the process of the mind and the body that is uh, where the wisdom comes, where our understanding. This is the, the understanding that is the liberation. This is how it is facilitated. So, but it's very important to understand this quality of restraint 
because it's you know normally I think we we think of restraint as like a, a leash or a, a whip or something like that you know these kinds of um, uh, harsh methods of, of containing something and maybe perhaps sometimes when states are very difficult you may have to be quite firm but generally the quality of this restraint has to be very very loving it has to be very soft you know Ajahn Sumedho talks about the, that tyrannical patriarch you know this activity in the mind that's always kind of cracking the whip and knocking ourselves around and it's, it's to be avoided whenever possible that this quality of beating ourselves up for what we see or for our impulses. So really the, the quality of restraint has to be much more like the restraint of a, of a loving mother who's trying to, say, keep a child from going out in the street after the ball, you know, keeping it from putting harmful objects in its mouth. It's done with utmost care and love and concern not out of a, a sense of, of thrashing or trying to force a behavior. And then, it's, then it just gets righteousness, you know, it just gets to be like this quality of, of um, a, a should. You know, meditation practice can have a lot of should in it. And it really is important for us to notice that and, and try to avoid it. It's not the right quality that you want in the heart. You have to really cultivate this sense of relaxation and ease so that what one is aware of can be done with the utmost gentleness and kindness of heart. So the, um, just looking at this quality of restraint like we do with the sutta on the six animals is just to get a sense of, of the rewards of just doing that much even if we don't know why we're doing it initially you know, uh, over time, what happens through this kind of practice is that you know you settle into a, a state of being with things and being okay with whatever. It's like I don't know about you, but I, I've seen it all in my mind. <laughs> I've seen it all, and and it doesn't matter anymore because you're not so caught up in and identified with what arises. But from this place of relaxation and ease, it's like, it's okay. It's, it's, it's not personal. You know, it, what arises is fine. The conditions of my life are fine. The conditions of today are fine. You know, cultivating a sense of being okay with whatever arises. So you, you, you end up with this kind of strange contentment, you know, with things as they are. Just, when the heart isn't always grabbing, then you have a, a much more, a much greater capacity for appreciation of what is. If you can feel it, it's like the the, the, the craving heart, the the heart that's filled with longing for other, can't appreciate anything. You know, it can't appreciate uh, this moment or what the day has to bring. So settling into this sense of just being at peace with things as they are. And eventually we get to see that the problem is is not as the mind would have us believe, that if we could just get things or get away from things, everything would be all right. 
The problem is that that craving or that longing arises in the first place. That's the difficulty. Because if the moment before that arose, everything was fine. <laughs> you know, and I guess meditation practice is kind of like getting us back to there. Getting us back to the state or the condition without the longing for something else. You know, that's the issue. And it's, it's, it's very subtle. I mean, I find over the years of meditation practice, what, what has been accomplished or, or what has been realized is a, a, a wonderful okayness with oneself. You know, like whatever your karma is, whatever are the conditions of your birth, the situations in your family, how, you know, how you look, how you uh, feel at any given moment, the people that we have in our lives, it's all okay. <laughs> you know, can you imagine really being able to realize a state where it's okay? It doesn't, it's good enough. It doesn't have to be more. Then we're really starting to uh, enjoy the fruits of the, the Buddhist teachings and practices. I don't know about you, but certainly when there's moments like that, uh, one feels a tremendous gratitude, you know, great happiness for uh, A, hearing these teachings, and B, having the good sense to, to listen, you know, and having the good sense to try to apply it, you know. But that's, that right there is very good karma. It's fabulous. And, you know, it's something that we can feel good about that each of us uh, comes to a place like this and, and uh, has ears to hear and the sense to, to listen. So this kind of restraint is, it has, a, has a certain uh, quality in it that it's, in itself it's, it's its own reward. You know, just the experience of, of um, settling into things as they are is its own reward. And we, in a funny kind of way, you tap into states that are a lot more pleasant than the thing that the mind is setting up. As if I could just have that, it would really be pleasant. But then, you know, we know after doing that over and over and over again that that's not the way it is. And one begins to experience that resting, relaxing in now, being okay with now, is actually a lot more happy, a lot more contented space. So, uh, these are some thoughts I thought might be useful for you tonight. I hope they are. And uh, let's see if we have a few minutes. If there's some, if you have some thoughts of your own or some questions. Yes. Right. Really hard. Mm. And I think 
about that sort of, I don't know if it's a struggle, but it's a kind of like a question I have, like, okay, well, if I, I guess my, I mean, my, my life is centered around my practice, and so, but when these things happen, it's still a ripshit part, and I guess, I guess I have to think, well, if I didn't have this practice, it would be a lot worse. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I mean, but uh, at some point, there is a basic nature in there of attachment. Attachment is part of the human condition. I mean, when we're born, we have an attachment to our caregivers or we'll die, basically. Yes. So this is what we fight. This is our life, this attachment. Yes, but um, I, I think the... Um the the condition of grieving over uh, a, a parent who has died is not necessarily one that's filled with attachment. I think that what uh, what he was pointing to is that um, once we get the reactive patterns out of the way, which um, would actually disturb the the more human response in a moment like that of loss. Um, then you're free to actually feel those things a lot more fully and a lot more deeply. Like the Buddhist teachings aren't um, a promise of freedom from uh, pain and freedom from those kinds of experiences in life, but they're freedom from adding anything to that or um, living in denial of them. You know, it, uh, somebody could... Uh, have a loss like that of a loved one and go into, um, you know, states of tremendous denial or rejection or, um, you know, go into great depression, grief-stricken, you know, um, or uh, just uh, kind of ignore the whole thing or, you know... um, and I think what we're saying here is that what you would actually uh, quote-unquote accomplish through the meditation practice is an open-hearted receiving of what is a, is a, a normal and appropriate human response to that kind of pain. Yeah. And personally, I love it. I, you're much more alive, you know? Yeah. And it's not that it doesn't keep coming back, you know. I lost my mother a few years ago, and you know the 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 thought of the the last few months of caring for her, and um, the thought of the experience that she had of dying, which wasn't very pleasant and uh, certainly very difficult to watch. She was in tremendous denial and not wanting to um, actually uh, admit that it was happening, you know. And uh, the, the pain as a daughter, <clears throat> watching her die like that. For a while, I wanted her to die another way. And that's, that's what was off. That's the thing that I think the Dalai Lama is pointing to in that example, where you don't... I, I suffered a lot for the first few months because I wanted her to die more in a more awake way. And she wasn't. And she never did. She never... And so it, it took, a, it took a, a while for me to get it, that she was going to die the way she was going to die. And that if I would stop 
overlaying my wishes or my hopes or my desires onto that and just receive the pure and simple experience of what was presenting itself to me, then it would, be, it would go a lot easier for her and for me. And it did. Mm-hmm. So without, that, without the overlay, you actually can respond with much more compassion. I think that's what's left, really, when, um, when, um, when our sort of unawake patterns are not engaged, you know, when um, you're not resisting or wanting and just being with the experience, then, like, what's left when these aberrated states of mind aren't present is kindness and compassion and open-heartedness, you know. We see it for ourselves. I mean, the, the Buddhist teachings say, look and see, don't take my word for it. You know, clear your mind of the um, aberrated states and see what's left. You know? And I'll be darned if it isn't like this happy, bright mind, you know, sort of in its natural state. I really uh, like the... Uh part that you were talking about, this practice being one of restraint. Mm -hmm. And one of the areas that I um, run into difficulty with is sometimes seeing things that perhaps are unwholesome and um, some subtle aversion coming up, you know, rather than really investigating them and coming to some realization how painful it is. There's just sort of this automatic, like, well, Vipassana romances, that's, mm. don't do that. Yeah. You know? So, right. I'm just, so, so I, I can find some, quite often, some fairly, well, sometimes not so subtle ones, but sometimes subtle aversions mm. coming. And I was wondering if you might talk about kind of how to work with, with that. Right, right. And it, it's, um, you know, you're pointing to um, the, the subtlety of the, Reactive patterns of you know greed, hatred, and delusion. The, we we will respond to what arises out of these states, and that includes our own states of mind. So that here uh, here comes a, a certain pattern of our thinking, and we don't like it. You know we want it to be some we want it, our, we want ourselves to be some other way. We want to have a different thought. You know, or we want, you know, we want this one, we don't want that one. That kind of thing will happen all the time. So you, it's actually, I just want to congratulate you, first of all, at the capacity to be able to see that. There's a tremendous amount of objectivity to be able to notice the aversion to one's own states of mind. So, you know, rather than getting into, just to, to remember that, because one thing that can often happen is that you, you really start to get into a cyclical thing of hating the state of mind and trying to get rid of it, and, and then hating that you hate that state of mind and trying to get rid of that, and then hating that you hated that and trying to get rid of that. It just you know, you can really spin out on it. So just contemplate that initially, and that can right there can soften you a lot around... Uh, aversion, you know, the fact that you can see aversion can can make your heart happy. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? 
So, um, you know, I would say do that first, you know, contemplate that a little bit. And just notice that um, in that contemplating that this is the way it is in the unawakened state. We have these ideas of ourselves. You know, we have an image of ourselves. And when what we do does not go along with that image, then we fight it and resist it and hate it. And so I find in moments like that, if you can settle down just a little bit more, it's like experience this, this kind of sense of like almost being on an elevator and going down under all of that and get, get even more settled such that you're looking at that state from a much more still place. Can you feel that? Like get, get down under the aversion to the mind states that I that are arising in my mind, right? Can you feel that? Like, uh, and from that vantage point, you're much more capable of seeing the the process of the mind from an even more detached perspective, and that's what has to happen, because basically there's a subtle aversion to aversion, or subtle aversion to greed, right? Then uh, when, you get, when you get down there, then it, it changes the whole dynamic. It's like, wow, did you see that? This is really interesting. I just did that, and then I hated that, and then I liked that, and then I wanted that. And at that level, you're not in it anymore. You know, you, you've broken it. <laughs> huh? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> you do. <laughs> You've broken it. It's, it's, fab- it's fascinating. It's, you know, the next moment you may go back in. That's okay. And really be happy for little wins, little moments. They count for a lot. They're, they're much bigger than we think. Do you want to sit a few more minutes before we go? <laughs>